Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. All right, before I get into the backstory behind today's podcast guest, I want to give a shout out to another listener who left an amazing five-star review on iTunes. Dr. Tochi, and forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Sometimes my inner American gets the best of me. Dr. Tochi says, great info. This podcast is full of extremely valuable information. Well, Dr. Tochi, thank you. There's a lot of work that goes into asking the questions, creating the show notes, and it's amazing to hear feedback like this. If you want to leave feedback as well, head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it's known now and leave a five-star review because frankly, it really helps. But let's get into the backstory on today's podcast guest. A couple of years ago, I was walking around Zurich, Switzerland And for those who haven't been there, Zurich, Switzerland in the winter at nighttime is both dark and cold. I can't recall if it was snowing or if it was just gloomy out, but I was listening to this guest being interviewed on another podcast. They were talking about his New York Times bestselling book, What Doesn't Kill Us, and I knew right away I just had to connect with him. Fast forward a couple of years, and my guest today is New York Times bestselling author, investigative journalist, and anthropologist Scott Carney. Yes, he wrote the book, What Doesn't Kill Us, but today, the majority of our conversation is around his new book, The Wedge. It's a book that I happen to absolutely love. So among the many different topics that we got into, we talked about why someone may want to throw kettlebells at their spouse. We talked about flotation tanks. We talked about cold therapy, saunas, and so much more. A shout out to Maris Zunda for providing this introduction. But the show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash the wedge. And enjoy my conversation with Scott Carney. All right, fam. Before we get into today's episode, let's just talk a little bit about some common needs that I have. Verbal fluency, short-term memory. Focus, apparently something to block the noise of the birds outside. But how do I get that? Or at least all of that except for blocking the noise of the birds. My go-to right now is blue canatine. Four ingredients, nicotine, methylene blue, hemp crystals, as well as caffeine come together in this almost amazing relationship to uplift my energy, to give me that focus, that short-term memory, that verbal fluency that I need to do things like podcasts. Not to mention, I get a blue tongue and go smurfing all day long. Actually, not all day, only for three to four hours. It's the closest thing that I found to NZT, and I think you guys should try it out. Head over to troscriptions.com and get yourself some. Enjoy my conversation with Scott Carney. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. 
You know, I, when your last book came out, I was, I remember when it came out because I was in Zurich, Switzerland and it was winter. I was, I was walking around and listening to the book, but also listening to a podcast that you did with Ben Greenfield at the time. And so there was one question that came to mind in that moment that uh, I, I wanted to ask you ever since, which is climbing Kilimanjaro without mm-hmm. the shirt. Mm-hmm. You, you did it. Would you do it again? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, would I do the same exact hike again with Wim uh, in that in that moment? I don't know. Actually, I sort of feel like these things are um, possibly best left as once in a lifetime challenges, where where you do them once, you find yourself overcoming it, and then. Um, uh, and then maybe what life should be is like looking for new challenges after that, right? Like, like all that I would be doing would be comparing that event where I climb up the mountain and I'm mostly naked and I have this amazing sense of connection to my environment. And the second time, what if it doesn't live up to that, to that one, right? No, yeah. I, I think I would, I would not do it uh, because, you know, I would much rather seek a different challenge where I'm finding myself in a new environment. Uh, than than redoing that one, but it's a really good question. I've never actually thought about it before. I mean, is there any challenge in that is kind of near term coming to mind for you that you want to tackle next? Well, right now we're under like basically lockdown, so <laughs> exactly. I, I would. I mean, uh, I would. I'm really curious to see if the Wim Hof method works against COVID nineteen, but I also don't want to infect myself with COVID nineteen. Uh, yeah. So that would be interesting, and that's sort of like what's out there because I'm not leaving my like like immediate area um, anytime soon. So. Uh, I certainly have done a lot of really cool things in the wedge, which is the book that we're, we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's a lot of like personal exploration um, that I'd love to do. I mean, I want to travel to a lot of places, but again, not doing that anytime soon. These are yeah. weird times, right? Yeah. Where did, I have to ask this question because Hindi is such an, for somebody that lives in Denver, Colorado, Hindi seems like an odd second language. What made you pick that up? And are are we going to switch to Hindi in this group, in this call? We we can, we can, you know, (laughs) (laughs) my, my limited experience in India is, uh, you know, my Hindi is limited to like TK. So that's, that's about it. TK. Yeah. That's a good one. You can get through a lot. Acha is an also nice one. It means good. (laughs) and also means like everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I was a, you know, I'm an investigative journalist, um, but I started out as like a young person and I went, I spent a year in India uh, in college where I first sort of um, experienced this very, very different environment, very, very different culture, religious traditions, like everything feels hard in India, which also means that every time you do something and you get it right, you feel like you've had a major achievement. So. Mm-hmm. I got a little addicted to going to India and I spent, I've spent about six years there. And wow. over that time um, I have you know, learned a passable broken Hindi, like, you know, any one who speaks Hindi formally and grew up in that language just laughs at me, but I can get my point across mm-hmm. really well. <laughs> and uh, you know, I learned mostly from rickshaw drivers. And, and so uh, I was initially an anthropologist. Um, you know, I sort of left student life and I was like a vagabond in India for a while. And then I went to grad school to get my PhD in um, cultural anthropology. Uh, and I, when I, I eventually left that program, I dropped out 
right at the dissertation phase uh, and, uh, and decided that I didn't want to, because I didn't want to just write a dissertation that like 10 academic advisors might read and yeah. then be on the tenure path, I decided to instead use the, that framing in anthropology to, uh, to write for a mass general audience. Um, and, um, and Hindi has actually served me incredibly well, especially for my early books. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a book called The Red Market, which was about organ trafficking around the world. And I spent a lot of time in India looking at people buying and selling human bones, skeletons, uh, 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 surrogate pregnancies, um, kidneys. Like, you know, I, 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 and I'm weirdly a world expert on organ trafficking. I mean, you may have not known that about me. Um, <laughs> Something that doesn't come across on your resume right away. But right. Um, and then, uh, but that book, The Red Market, you know, sort of really established me as sort of a serious journalist in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and since then, uh, I, I've done a lot of just uh, crazy other things. I've moved back to America, obviously, and now I'm working on um, this sort of more biohacking side of uh, things. Yeah. Before we get into the biohacking, what part of India were you in? Because I've spent considerable amount of time in both Mumbai and Delhi, but not mm. much of the rest of the country. So... I spent about three years in the north uh, uh-huh. in general. You know, I spent a lot of time in Jaipur, a lot of time in Delhi, a lot of time in Dharamshala. Um, Kathmandu, also Lhasa, uh, so we're, you know, Nepal, Tibet, mm-hmm. um, uh, those areas. Uh, as, so about three years sort of like traveling around and getting an apartment for like four months at a time in various places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I spent three years in Chennai, which is in the southern, uh, in yeah. southern India. And I don't speak any Tamil. My Tamil is not. <laughs> uh- this experience is very unique, right? Especially from kind of the Midwest or Western Mid uh, United States. How has that shaped? And we can transition a little bit into the wedge because you had a very unique statement about the meaning of life that I found fascinating. How has that shaped how you view the meaning of life? And then for those listening, if you don't mind defining it, that would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, broad question, but, <laughs> right? Let's just dive into the most existential question right away. <laughs> so, Scott, what does it mean to be human? I mean, really, yeah. just let's break it. Well, I think that we're, you know, we're born uh, in, into this world with sort of a, 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 a very wide horizon for the sorts of actions that we can take in life, right? And, and yet society also has sort of a track uh, and actually different sites have different tracks that you're supposed to go. Um, but in America, it's like, you know, you grow up, you go to high school, you maybe do some athletics in high school, you get a job, or you go to college, you get a girlfriend, you go to a job, you get married, you have kids, and eventually this ends with you dying comfortably in a bed after fully funding your retirement. Now, that is a path that's totally fine. People want to go down that path. It's a great path. You know, mm-hmm. it's tried and true, right? Yeah. Um, but, but my view is also, you know, I, I look at life as something like a, like a zipper. Okay. Like, yeah, I'm wearing a, a zipper right now. So, mm-hmm. so if you have this down here and the d- birth is at the bottom of the zipper, right? That's my, this is my company's logo. Yeah. I, I love the logo actually. That's great. <laughs> so at the bottom of the zipper, that's where you're born. And that zipper can go super wide and go in every single direction possible. Mm-hmm. But every second, every, you, you zip that up until finally it's the top of your dead. Um, and you're, and, and it's narrowing your possibilities mm-hmm. um, as, as you go. And I think that, you know, you can, you can take different tacks. Like there's nothing wrong with taking different tacks because at the end of the day, your zipper is still going to zip all the way up and you're still going to be dead. And, and I think the meaning, the, the, the big question in, in my, the big, 
I mean, it's, I'm going to say it's a big statement, but it's like everyone's made the statement before, right? Like we're going to die. You know, you're going to die. You know that this game that we're in, um, you know, if life is a song, it ends in a minor key. And, mm-hmm. and, and there's that ultimate reality that, that's happening. And, and what life is, is essentially, you know, I, I'm going to say that life is a wedge and, and we haven't even defined what the wedge is yet. We're going to get but to li- it. But li- life is this, is this space between birth and death where you get to choose what direction you take. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with taking any of those other paths because at the end of the day, we all meet the same, uh, uh, the same fate. You know, Neil Gaiman, who's, uh, you know, I love, I love the Sandman series. I don't know if you've, yeah. you've read it. Yeah. Uh, but th- so he has this one line that always comes back to me uh, where there's this character named Death in it. Uh, and she's like this punk rock chick, right? Mm-hmm. And, and she's talking to a man who is immortal, right? Comic book, right? And he's lived a really, really long period of time. He's lived like 800 years. And, 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 and he has just died, like a rock fell on him or something. I forget how he died, but he somehow dies sort of stupidly. And he says, well, I had a pretty long run, right? I did pretty good. And Death looks at, looks at him and says, you lived the same amount of time as everyone. You, you, you live the same amount as everyone else. Everyone gets just one life. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really, really important thing because it's not the length of time that you spend here. It's not the, 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 the amount of money you accrue. It's not, it's not, not uh, any of that that matters. What matters is how deeply you feel things, how deeply you experience life um, and how alive you are at, right now at this moment right here, which is important. And maybe mm-hmm. you can hear some echoes in this of like Hindu philosophy or Buddhist philosophy. You know, that's probably inflecting um, mm-hmm. my thoughts a little bit. And I think for a lot of people listening and myself included from time to time, we get caught up in this well-trodden path and all of a sudden we wake up and it's a year later, it's a week later, Monday through Friday, just kind of breeze by. Right. Mm-hmm. And the idea of interrupting that and just kind of enjoying that moment Right. Can we talk a little bit about how to do that, and does that constitute the the wedge itself? Sure, that's a that's a that's a part of it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the wedge has sort of a more bounded definition because I talk about sensation, how we experience <laughs> things. But if you think about life, like that, like this this amount of time that you have, um, you're only right here and right now. Right? There's mm-hmm. only the, actually the present. And we don't know what the future is going to look like. We could be dead tomorrow, right? But we, but, and we also know that we were a different person in previous iterations, even though our experience is continuous, right? You know, we know that if we add up every minute of every thought and every, every experience from birth till now, there's sort of like this trajectory that goes between them. But who we are now and who I am speaking to you is very different than speaking to my wife or speaking to anyone else. Like everything is context and everything is actually present. It's actually right here in this moment. And, um, and if we let that, that time pass by without thought, without criticism, it's sort of what you, it, it's sort of like what you said, like you can go from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday to December to next January to, you know, three years down the line and not really articulate why you're doing these things. And I think that's a very, you know, one thing about the, the about the, this book is I'm finding ways to interrupt those cycles or yeah. find to interrupt those ruts that you get in to to really appreciate the moment that you're in right now. And we do that by instituting stress, 
right? We do that by instituting something which is difficult that you have to face um, emotionally, physically with your sensory systems so that you, so that if you, because if you ignore it, you know, in generally you're in danger, right? You know that there's like, we have to have this element of, of something which is, which, which commands your intention, Mm -hmm. um, risk or something like that. So that then you look at it and that's when you feel alive, when you're at this litmus of a risk and not risk. And of course we don't want to take risks that actually damage us. Mm -hmm. We want the risk that, that makes us aware of where we are. And, and one truth is that we're always at risk, right? It's just that we often blind ourselves to what the risks are. Like I'm at risk right now. Uh, and you are at risk right now of dying of COVID, right? It's you know? true. Yeah. Well, or or getting hit by a car or an asteroid or you know a, a random I'm in America so a random gunshot right <laughs> <laughs> we have those occasionally here too <laughs> but like 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 the, like we oftentimes um, uh, try to ignore, we 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 accept risks that are there and we're like okay no those are fine and we and we don't need to do those again uh, or we we accept that there is this random chance so we so it doesn't command our attention mm-hmm. which is also maybe why I don't want to go back up Kilimanjaro because I sort of know those risks mm-hmm. right I know what's what's out there so so one of the things we want to do is push ourselves into new environments you know Eleanor Roosevelt once said do one thing every day that scares you and I think that's a really decent um precept to to follow um, because we don't want to you know if we only have a limited amount of time then we should try to pay attention to as much of it as possible mm-hmm. and yet for so many people listening to this it, it, it's very hard to do that right we get caught up in future pacing ourselves or in certain cases right. if you have depression you know looking into the back or looking into mm-hmm. the past too much right at, at this point let's talk about the wedge because this Again, you, you're a fantastic storyteller, and I love reading about you throwing kettlebells. And frankly, I was going to do it this afternoon in my backyard. Good. But awesome. uh, the wedge, how would you define it for people that are you know, listening to this right now? So it's a way of separating stimulus from response. Um, mm-hmm. That's the most general way to do it, um, where, where there's something coming in from the, in generally the outside world. Um, that that hits you and that your body, not necessarily your mind, but your mind could also be part of this, but your body has an automatic response. And I learned this um, by initially um, meeting Wim Hof back in 2010, 2011. I met him and his Wim Hof's thing is you jump in ice water and you control yourself in ice water. And by doing that, you gain command of the automatic parts of your nervous system, the auto- automatic, autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and essentially, cold water is a, is a standard stimulus. Like all human bodies respond essentially the same to it, which is you get thrown into the water and then you clench up. Uh, you know, you can think about right now, what's it like to feel a cold shower? And your shoulders will probably get tense and your mm-hmm. butt will get tense, right? And and, and then you dump cortisol and adrenaline to like fight, like it's your fight or flight response to keep you warm in this environment and, and, and let you survive. What the Wim Hof method, the genius of the Wim Hof method is that you get into this stimulus and he also has a breathing program, which is actually follows a similar program. Um, you get in there and then instead of tensing up, you will yourself to relax and you say, okay, it's just cold water. And by doing that, what you're doing at your, at your nervous system level is you're switching from your fight or flight responses to your rest and digest responses. You're going from sympathetic 
nervous system to parasympathetic nervous system. And, uh, and, and, and when you do that, when you flip that switch, you start to gain control of, of parts of your body that you didn't know you could control. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, 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 and when I, when I first did this, you know, like literally the first time I jumped into ice water with Wim and I was in my like five or 10 minutes in, in this, um, really cold, uh, stream by his house. I, I, I saw that as if I was literally putting a wedge between that stimulus and that response. And this is where this whole idea comes from. Like, I'm not even sure it's not necessarily the best title for this book, but it's been this image that has been in my mind sensitive that we're inserting this wedge and it's literally like broadening that space between stimulus and response. But sometimes the way the wedge is really interesting is sometimes you want to remove the wedge and you want to have an automatic response because it's not worth it to think about the 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 difference. So so what this journey is 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 me finding different ways to to separate stimulus from response in both the the nervous system but also emotionally um, to to work with depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, creativity, sort of any anything where you where where something outside is impacting something inside, it's allowing us to have choice. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And there's certain things that I specifically would love to just hear your thoughts on in terms of anxiety and how to separate that, because that's very relevant to this audience. But we'll get into that in a second. You had some uh, some time with Stanford professor Andrew Huberman, and right. you know, you talked, and he had a great story about, I believe it was cage diving, right. and sort of fear and your reaction to it. Do you mind just talking us through, there's a specific term in there that you use called neurosymbols mm-hmm. and maybe why those are relevant in this process of, of creating wedges. Sure. Uh, yeah. And neural symbols are really the highlight concept of the entire book. And, and mm-hmm. I got this, this idea, not only from Andrew Huberman, who, who sort of walked me through the nervous system, but also, um, but two professors at Wayne State University, Otto Music and Vaibhav Dewadkar, mm-hmm. who, um, and, and I think that these are sort of general neuroscience science ideas, and we've sort of put a term on what's going on here. Uh, and, you know, think about how you experience reality in, at the most fundamental and most neurological level. Like when you're born, you are, uh, you know, you're a baby, you're looking out at your body, and your body is basically autonomic at that point. Like you can't really control your arms. You can't really control your, 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 the way you're, you're blind basically. And you're sort of like the, the stuff is there, but you have to work it to sort of understand how it all comes together. And absolutely every part of, of, of that process is a wedge process. It's like changing something from autonomic and automatic to something which is under conscious control. Now what a neural symbol is, 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 is it's basically the bits and bytes of human cognition. You know, it's the software of human cognition versus the hardware of how mm-hmm. we're, we're all wired together. And, and everything that you experience is both an emotion and a sensation tied together into one little cognitive package that then when you put billions and billions of these little cognitive packages together, you can form complex thoughts and, and, and everything else we do. And I want to explain the very first time I, I want to use the example of ice water and I want to tell you the first time you experience um, ice water in your life. And I want to walk you through this to sort of explain how this all um, re, uh, comes together. Please. Now, now let's say you're like a 
teenager. You've never, you've never jumped in the snow, but you've had some experience with cold before, right? And, and you jump into this, into this um, environment. And the first thing that happens is the environment itself is cold. And that touches your peripheral nervous system, such as the nerves on your fingers and your skin. Um, there, there's some sounds that come through this as well. Um, you seize various stimuli. And all of that comes in from your periphery into your central nervous system, so up your spine, and it rockets as a chemical signal into the lowest part of your brainstem, into the limbic system. This is what they call the lizard brain. Mm -hmm. And in the lizard brain, uh, I'm going to use a metaphor. Let's call the, the lizard brain a library. And in the head of this library, there is a librarian, and we'll call her the limbic librarian. She sees this signal come in, and, and, and all it is is, is a volume this is an, and it knows this is an intense signal and there's a quality to it, which she cannot identify because it just comes in there and she's like, Oh, look, I've, I've never seen this before. And she looks through her library of neural symbols that are out there and she says, well, I've never had ice water before. So what she does is she kicks up. She's trying to figure out how to respond, how you, the rest of your brain should respond to this. And she kicks it up to essentially a book binder into the paralimbic system, which is like a centimeter away from your limbic system. She sends it there and says, what's this weird sensation? And, and the bookbinder um, looks at this and, say, and, and has this quality of ice water. It's a really loud signal and says, well, I don't know. I, you've, never, you've never seen it. So what she does, what this bookbinder does is bonds it to your current emotional state. So the sensation of cold water is bonded to your emotion. And um, for various reasons, cold water, um, there's an instinctual emotion that comes out with it, uh, which is unmitigated fear and horror, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, this probably actually comes because there's earlier neural symbols from you actually exiting your mother going from a warm to a cold environment. But regardless, unmitigated terror and horror. Uh, and it says, okay, cold water, unmitigated terror water. She, he kicks it back down to the book binder. She's like, great. I now know what, I now have a neural symbol for this sensation. Mm -hmm. And she puts it on a shelf and you go, and you go about your life and you, you experience this cold water. Now, here's the most important thing about neural symbols is that the next time you jump into ice water, you, next time you experience this, that signal comes into the limbic librarian. She looks at it and says, oh, I already have this book. And she goes and pulls off that earlier neural symbol and it says, it means unmitigated terror and horror. Mm -hmm. And then you go about your life so that you are experiencing right now in that moment, your earlier emotional state. And this is the fundamental bit and bite of all human cognition. Like, you know, don't just, because Basically, your brain is just this organ sitting in the middle of your skull, floating in a salt bath, and everything it experiences has to come in through your peripheral nervous system. Mm -hmm. So everything goes through this process, and every emotion you, you feel uh, is bonded to a sensation. And if you do that enough times, just like a computer program, right, so the ones and zeros, it's sensation and emotion. And, and, and this... I, this is really the fundamental process to understand in the wedge. Cause what we're trying to do is, is the next time you get into that ice bath, you're never actually going to get rid of the unmitigated horror and terror of an ice bath. Mm -hmm. Okay. I still have it. I still look at an ice bath and I'm like, and I've done a lot of ice baths. I've done a lot <laughs> of hours. And it's still the hardest thing I've ever done to turn a hot shower to a cold knob mm -hmm. because I still ha will always have that neural symbol mm -hmm. in my brain. However, I have also put many, many more neural symbols into my brain where I have experienced the cold shower in different ways. And I have, I, I have said, look, 
I don't want to do that. There's this anticipation of not wanting to do it, but I also know that I feel amazing after it. I have also can sit in a cold shower and say, this is not cold. This is the, the, the physical sensation of joy. Mm-hmm. And that actually creates, that's another emotion fixed with another sensation. And that book binder says, okay, we'll put that there. So my shelf of cold water is actually really wide mm-hmm. and I get to choose which book I want to do now. And that's really what we're doing with the wedge is we're trying to make a bigger library for your sensations so that you have some choice in which book you want to pull off. And a lot of us, because we're so addicted to comfort, so addicted to sort of a narrow band of experience, we don't bother to put new books on those shelves. Mm-hmm. So Using the analogy of books on the shelves, but also uh, the when you're you're speaking of this in the cold showers, uh, something that immediately comes to mind with regards to my life, and I know a lot of the listeners is public speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And public speaking, I know you mentioned in the book, is sort of one of these things that inherently, for a lot of people, for many people, it's it's terrifying. And right. maybe it goes back to evolution and being thrown out of the tribe and being eaten by lions or whatever it is. But <laughs> everything goes back to being eaten by lions. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Fundamentally, we're just worried about being eaten by lions. But when you're rebuilding this and instituting, maybe if we can take people through step by step, like how would you look at public speaking? Because you do a lot of it and mm-hmm. rewiring yourself. So that maybe not rewiring, but putting more books on that shelf. How right. do you, how do you look at that? Well, I mean, oftentimes, I mean, not everyone has trouble with public speaking. That's Some true. people just, can just go through it, right? Because their first experience, they go, "All guy was affirmation." But a lot of us have these negative experiences at some point in our life. You know, it could be from public groups, it could be from uh, childhood memories, or really anything. Like it could be a million things that make you um, have a difficult time public speaking because honestly, when you're up on that stage, there are, it's not just you and the public, it's you and your heartbeat. It's you and the, uh, the ambient air temperature, the light quality. I mean, there's so many neural symbols going on at once that a lot of the, many different things could be triggering an anxiety response there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you do want to do is you want to, 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 well, if you can find, if before we get to the thing that really scares you, let's say that is the thing that scares you more than anything else, I would actually start with other areas of the wedge first. I would first start with, with another practice, such as cold, such as heat, such as these throwing kettlebell things, to mm-hmm. show you that you can get into a fear place, and then you can switch that fear to a positive emotion. And mm-hmm. I think just knowing that you have that capability is a very, very powerful thing. Uh, and you know, with the kettlebell throwing, which we'll probably talk about at some point, um, one of the things that happens is, is, is people have heard now, Scott throws kettlebells and he's gonna break his foot. Like this is everyone has thought, had this thought, you're throwing kettlebells sounds like breaking feet. Well, when I tell you, you actually throw it to another person and you pass back and forth and you're like, well, you're gonna break multiple feet now. Yeah. Um, Shattering kneecaps, it's just like, there it goes. <laughs> totally. Uh, but one of the things that's so amazing about this, this kettlebell throwing thing is actually the practice is fairly easy to learn. It's mm-hmm. unlikely you're going to break, break your feet because it's a little slow. But nonetheless, there's that fear of danger in it, fear of failure. And the fear of failure is a broken foot. There's the real consequences of breaking your foot. Mm-hmm. But in general, you, you find that you can do it. And you can also learn trust with another person because if you're throwing back and forth to another person, you're both facing the same fear and you have to cooperate. And that's really what the lesson is out of throwing kettlebells. Now, 
if you learn that you, and, and all of a sudden it goes from fear to be like, oh, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm in a flow state. I'm actually, this is a blast. And it, it turns out that kettlebell throwing is actually a lot like dancing at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's actually a blast. Um, you know, people go skateboarding all the time too. And you think, oh, skateboarding, you're gonna break your head. And then look, these people are having a lot of big blast skateboarding. I mean, this is a process in lots of things. So I would say before you address whatever that main fear you have, public speaking, let's say, um, try taking another fear, even one that's, that's minor, even one that you didn't even know you had, but has sort of this visceral response and realize that you can change it. And I think having that idea where, where something that is not a fear, but then you make a little fear and then it turns into fun is hugely powerful because it's showing that you can change. When you have fear, it's a sensation right? It's not just a cognitive thought. It's an actual feeling in your body. It's the puckering of your butt. It's the, the clenching of yourself. And it's you going from clenched to release. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when you get onto that stage, you're going to be butt puckering there too, right? Yeah. You're going to take up there and you're going to be thinking, of, oh my God, this is going to fail for and whatever. I don't even know where it's going to go for you and fail. You might think that you're, you know, you're going to go broke or everyone's going to make fun at you or, you know, what, there's, there's, or someone's going to post something bad on Twitter about you. I mean, all this stuff is going to be going through your head. Um, But once you know that you can switch from one to the other, I mean, honestly, one of the things that makes you fail in public speaking is fear. You know, if you, if you want to have a panic attack, don't do it on stage. (laughs) That that is easier said than done. But once you do start realizing that you're not panicking mm-hmm. um, when you're on stage, you end up in this flow state. You end up having, been, if, you, if you're able to get past that fear, all of a sudden that stage um, experience becomes fun and the words come out. Because honestly, if you're up on stage, you, it should be something you know about. It should be something you are an expert in because otherwise, why the fuck would you be up there? Of course. Um, and and, and it's, it's really once you dump that anxiety and you accept that even you can make mistakes uh, on an, uh, in front of an audience. And usually the audience is forgiving. I mean, you know, probably 95% of the audiences that are out there are very, very forgiving. Um, and, and you can, you, I mean, you can just get into it. I mean, it's, it's this anxiety thing. And, and once you learn, you can flip it in one sphere, uh, you can flip it in another. And I would also say, don't start to make your first talk at a Tony Robbins stage in front of 40,000 people. <laughs> start. Maybe start a little smaller than that. Just um, 20,000, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it, it, let's talk a little bit more about the kettlebell swinging because I think people are throwing. It's not swinging. Swinging would be pretty, right. pretty easy by comparison. Uh, yes. How would you recommend people start with this? Because in the book, you outline it, but I know that there's a bunch of people listening to this right now that want to just go out and throw kettlebells. How would right. you get started? So right now, we're jamming away with Scott Carney about all things The Wedge. For a moment, I just want to take a break and talk about enhancement. And for me, what do I use for cognitive enhancement? You heard earlier me talk about blue canatine, but another tool in the toolbox that I love comes from those folks over at Neurohacker Collective. You guys know I've been a fanboy since really their inception a couple of years ago. I use the original stack almost as soon as it came out. I use Qualia Mind, both caffeinated and caffeine-free, and still use caffeine-free on the reg, so to speak. And of course, they've come out with a Turnus as well as an energy drink. 
I love all their products and I encourage you to go out and try some. Head over to neurohacker.com, use the code BOOMER, and you'll get 10% off your order, or if you subscribe, 15% off. Let's get back to that conversation with Scott, shall we? So it's easiest to do, I mean, you want to do it with another person initially. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are ways to throw kettlebells alone, which is sort of kettlebell juggling. Uh, And I think it's a useful skill and I do it when I can't find a partner to throw with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get your wife to throw with you at all? I, I do. I do. Although we do have different sort of strength profiles and she <laughs> prefers a, a lighter bell. I, I prefer a, a heavier bell. Mm-hmm. And the lightest bell that I want to throw is, is above where her um, bell that is. she wants. Yeah. yeah, we can do it, but we can't do it as long as I can with somebody sort of an equal strengthful profile. However, I will say that Throwing between couples is probably the most intense uh, of them all because, you know, there's, the stakes are even higher, right? Yeah. I don't want to break my foot. I really don't want to break her foot. Yeah, because right? if that happens, then your, <laughs> your relationship becomes very hectic for a little while. Right? Well, I mean, it's, it's about empathy. It's not yeah. even about the relationships. I don't want to hurt my wife, right? Yeah, of course, it, it, of course. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a more... Um, yeah, I mean, it's not about what, how this plays out. I really just don't want to hurt her. Yeah. And and when you're, what, what's so fascinating about this is when you have a couple, um, it, it's not only about throwing kettlebells and looking awesome on Instagram or something like that, piece of bullshit. What it is, is uh, it's about developing trust. And couples oftentimes have a really hard time at first throwing kettlebells because in your relationship, you have all of these little islands that you don't want to go to, right? There's those little islands of discussions that like, uh, you know, it's best not to go there. It's, yeah. it's, we don't want to do that. And, and those islands, I think, are healthy in a lot of times. I mean, sometimes you just don't want to go to these places and it's better for the functional relationship not to do it. But it also, there's a subtle undermining of trust there because if I go to that island, it's going to, you know, we're going to have this, this thing. So actually your relationship troubles play out in how you swing a kettlebell, how you throw a kettlebell, because you have to trust that the other person is going to throw you a good throw that you're going to catch it and be able to return it well. And, and usually what happens is couples have a really hard time at first Mm -hmm. um, throwing kettlebells. And then over time, they learn a new way to communicate physically um, through the object of a threat. Now, this is what's so fast. This is the voodoo of kettlebell throwing is that, is that the threat is the kettlebell in motion and both your eyes are looking at this kettlebell. And there's like a ritual where you start where the first swing, let's say I'm throwing the kettlebell to you, I, I go, it goes between my legs and then the kettlebell goes up to like my shoulder height and I'm looking in your eyes as this is happening. Wow. That's the first. And on the mm-hmm. second swing, we're still looking at your eyes and then the, when the bell gets to its apogee at the highest point, we both move our eyes from each other where we're connected to the bell. And then the mm-hmm. bell goes back and then, you know, the receivers look at the bell the whole way. And obviously the person throwing can't look at it the whole way because it goes behind your butt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then you, and then the third throw is where it comes up and you're both tethered. Your attention is tethered to this bell. It flips through the air, goes into someone at the other person's hands, and then they return that energy. And because of the, the way, because everyone is thinking, I don't want to break my foot and I don't want to break the other person's foot. Mm-hmm start to coordinate automatically and you start to learn trust through this, this proxy um, between the two of you. And, you know, I love getting like big dudes, like big 
scary looking dudes <laughs> facing off with them with a freaking cannonball in my hand. And, you know, usually this is a violent, so this is a, a, a we, we dudes love being confrontational, yeah. right? And, and you're throwing this bell and, and, and instead of like throwing it with aggression, you throw it with love, man. You throw it with all of your best intentions because you want that person to catch it and you want it to come back. And if someone wins in kettlebells, you both actually lose. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the message that comes out of this. Uh, and, I, and I love that. And, you know, sometimes Tony, the guy who taught it to me is a guy named Tony uh, sorry, Tony, it's Michael. It's Michael Castro Giovanni. His best friend's name is Tony. Um, and, and, uh, and what he'll do is after you've been doing this a little while, right? After you've gotten some of the things, he'll throw it to you. And as he's throwing, he says, I love you, Scott, which is always a little off-putting. Yeah. I mean, that can catch you off guard, right? If you're not expecting it. <laughs> right. It usually catches you off guard, but it's also really important to, to have a physical practice, which is also an emotional practice. You mm-hmm. see how this builds right this is this is the the connection i'm trying to get all these good vibes and i'm trying to 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 fit it into something which is dangerous and fearful Mm -hmm. one of the other practices that you went through was uh sensory deprivation tanks and yeah love those I, I do too. And I was introduced to them by a boss a long time ago who basically said, you need to try this. And here in Amsterdam, we have a great center for it. But the history of sensory deprivation tanks is fascinating. You cover it in book. But how did that play in as sort of a, a wedge to you? How did that right. directly go into your life? So most of sensory, most of the wedge that, I, that I'm in, that practices that I look at are me getting into an intense physical environment where I'm looking at the outside world and there's a stress of some sort, mm-hmm. heat, cold, fear. Um, there's some psychedelic stuff in there, but it's like, it's usually a big signal coming from the outside world. And then you're trying to, to modulate yourself in the presence of that signal. Mm-hmm. The sensory deprivation tank is actually the very opposite idea. It's, it's putting yourself in a place where there's so few signals coming in from the outside world. It's, you know, it's not true isolation, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's the meniscus of the water on you. There's humidity. Um, there's, there's various external signals coming in, but it's about as tuned down as we've been able to find, to get a human, right? And, and in this environment, what actually comes out are your internal Sounds. It's what they. It's what um, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists call interoception. Mm-hmm. You start looking inwards. To all of a sudden, uh, I can hear my heartbeat. I can hear the blood flowing through my veins. I can hear the creaking of my joints. I'm 40 years old, so all my joints creak. Um, and and there's like you suddenly become aware of your internal body as an external environment. Because remember, your brain is just floating in your body, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you, you realize all the signals that your body creates. Now, when we take that into the idea of neural symbols, uh, now I gave you the cold water symbol, which is a really, really powerful, strong signal that, that sort of overrides everything else because the volume is so high. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also feeling, even subperceptually, a hundred stimulus right now, um, you know, again, quality of light, air pressure, temperature, um, smells, and, uh, you know, on and on and on, the, the, the feeling of your clothing against your skin. And, and, and there's just a million sensations that more or less you don't pay attention to. But it doesn't mean that your brain is not registering them. And it's basically the librarian be like, yep, seen clothes before. Yep, seen air before. Yep. And, and she doesn't really care about it. So she's not processing new information. Mm-hmm. Um, 
However, in a, an environment, like let's say you have a stressful experience. And I, I like to use the apocryphal story of a soldier in Afghanistan uh, walking down the street, uh, you know, and, and there's a million things going on. There's the quality of light. There's the tea cellar hawking tea. There's some flowers over there and there's some children playing. And there's all these sounds of just like normal street life going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden the roadside bomb goes off next to him and his friend gets killed and he's thrown to the ground and he has some injuries. And what happens in this instance is that all of those earlier sensations that were just passively being processed by your brain are suddenly bonded with the terror and the trauma of that experience uh, and wired straight, you know, the, 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 the limbic book binder, the paralimbic book binder bound, bound all those books and said, oh my God, flowers, tea sellers, unmitigated trauma and mm -hmm. horror. And so that now when the soldier goes home, and, and, you know, let's say they, they fully recover from their wounds. Uh, they're walking down the street and they have a panic attack. They don't know where this panic attack just suddenly came from. This is what PTSD is. Yeah. Um, but what, it, what, it, what, what was happening is the quality of light was just somehow similar. Like some this, this minor, unrelated to the roadside bomb, but your, your, your brain had processed the quality of light and that triggered the panic attack because it brought them back to their trauma. Now, one of the other things that happens all, in almost all trauma cases is that um, you have such a high spike of adrenaline. So your fight or flight spot response goes crazy because you're trying to survive whatever situation that is, um, that the adrenaline hits your heart. Your heart suddenly is, um, is so loud. You can start to hear your heart in that traumatic situation. Um, you can hear your blood pressure because everything in your body is trying to give you as much energy as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that trauma experience, you actually bond your heartbeat to the trauma and you can't escape your heartbeat. Your heartbeat is always going to be there. So what happens in the sensory deprivation tank, which is so fascinating uh, and it's in the, the research is done by uh, Justin Feinstein at the mm -hmm. Laureate lab for um, uh, brain research. One of the only float research center in the world. Well, he took all of these people with generalized anxiety disorder and severe anxiety disorders, um, some soldiers, but also just like car accidents and rapes and all those other horrible things that can happen to a person. Mm -hmm. um, put them into a sensory deprivation tank. And after just one hour, they're like, oh my God, I can hear my heartbeat. And I've, I've been so nervous about my heartbeat. Now I can hear my heartbeat in an environment which is totally safe because the, the float tank, I mean, if you're going to a float center that's not safe, that's really, really bad, right? Um, it should be an interesting totally place safe. to be. <laughs> yeah, it's this calm, empty place. And all of a sudden you become aware of your body and then when they, these people got out, the fascinating thing with the studies that he's done is he sees a hundred percent improvement, not um, that, that, that phrasing is a little hard. So he does a, um, a, a pre-test, mm -hmm. a pre-questionnaire to the people who go in the float tanks. And then he does a, a test after the float tank and then a month after the float tank. And he found that every single person improved on their anxiety and depression after just a one hour float tank and that those, those changes persisted for at least a month after that float, just because they were able to get one 60 minute float, one 60 minute. Wow. Float. Uh, which, which is much better than an SSRI, which yeah. is a serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, a, a general, um, like Prozac. And I should just say the fucking brand names, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you can go for it. It's, it's fine on the shelf. <laughs> Um, it's so much better than what the chemical interventions are because we're dealing directly with sensations. Mm -hmm. And when you have anxiety, it, 
you don't think about anxiety as a, as a um, well, you don't experience anxiety as a cortisol and adrenaline um, mismanagement protocol in your body. You're not, you don't sit around and be like, oh, my adrenaline's spiking right now. That feel, that's, that's horrible. I have anxiety. What you do is like, oh, no, I feel my heartbeat. I have the sensations. I feel tightness. I, I'm scared about the future. That's what anxiety feels like. Mm -hmm. The beauty of float tanks is it works on the sensory level, which is so much more, um, um, I think, fulfilling in a way to, to deal with it at that level than, than deal with it at the chemical level. And I'm not saying that we, I, 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 I'm not saying get rid of Western medicine, get rid. There's no, I'm not saying there's no use for SSRIs or yeah. things like that. Um, but I'm saying this is a very complementary practice and in some ways even better because there's no side effects to a, a float tank. You mentioned PTSD and one of the, I guess, hot topics in particularly health optimization space that we're talking about is the phase three trials that uh, MAPS is going through with on MDMA. And yeah, but there you go. Uh, but in terms of a wedge, and yeah. this is something that I have experimented with in my own life and found extremely effective in short periods right. of time, psychedelics right. is a wedge. I would right. love to hear just how you've used them, how you've heard other people use them, et cetera. So the, the way I like to think of the wedge is there's three places that you can insert a wedge mm -hmm. uh, into, a, into a person's experience, right? Which is the first one is changing your environment, ice water, float tank, whatever. And then from there, you change your reactions to that environment, it goes through your chemical pathways, goes to your brain, and you're trying to modulate your response. So changing environments is a huge one. And that's like most of what the wedge practices that I talk about. Another place is your intentions. When you're sitting in that ice water, you, you say, instead of unmitigated feel and horror, I am going to experience this as joy, right? It's like literally just facing your intentions at that sensation and like hardwiring a neural symbol into it. Those are two places that, that we sort of covered so far. The third space is the actual chemical pathways between your peripheral nervous system and your limbic system, or sometimes other areas in your brain too, depending on what we're doing. Um, and with MDMA, what we're doing is a chemical intervention at the sensory level. Mm -hmm. So before your brain processes something, MDMA essentially puts a filter on it where everything is positive. Like, like MDMA, it force, it, MDMA is the wedge because it changes this, the, 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 literally the way you experience sensations become positive. This is why when you hear about parties where people are all rolling on MDMA, um, they're all like touching each other and feeling each other because touch feels amazing. Well, because MDA wired you to make that feel amazing. And, and there's like almost no bad touches on MDMA because people are so, I mean, I'm sure you can have bad touches on MDMA, but, but you're generally so predisposed to be wired in a way that's positive. Now, what I did was MDMA with my wife with um, two psychiatrists in the room mm -hmm. who had never actually seen, I mean, they'd used MDMA, so they knew what the effects were like on them. Um, but they had never um, seen it in a clinical setting. So it was sort of like, it's like MAPS, right? MAPS yeah. is, the, is, is, the, is, the, is the people doing clinical trials on it. But this is just seeing what like everyday clinicians would see if they just did MDMA in a therapeutic setting. Yeah. Uh, and so my wife and I have actually a really good relationship overall. You know, over, I think we're, we're very strong. We do all of these crazy practices together. I sort of drag her through them. You know, she's the real hero of the mm -hmm. book and, many, many ways. Um, but 
what, but everyone has these islands where you don't want to go to, right? There's always like, no, even the best relationship has all these islands that you don't want to touch. And that, that can sort of great. And sometimes they can grow bigger. Um, and, and healthy relationships have these two, but it's still better to, to be able to address these. And mm-hmm. so, so what we did is we went on MDMA and, and uh, it sets in and everything, no matter what in the clinical setting, because we're not going to be touching each other in, in front of psychiatrists. That feels really awkward. You don't lose your, your personhood when you're on this, but you instead you interpret everything as, as positive as possible. Mm-hmm. So that when we're having a conversation, we can say things that are really, really difficult to each other. And, and then you address them in automatic, in, in, in the most beneficial and positive ways possible. So for instance, and this is not something that we actually talked about but but let's say i said i hate your mother to my wife mm-hmm. usually if you say i hate your mother that's gonna Boom. be like yo fuck you i hate you man. <laughs> like you know <laughs> like because you're gonna have this automatic response but mm-hmm. instead you can have that that thing and be like oh yeah i understand you know it's so hard for you let's you know let's talk about that let's unpack this and you know i don't want you to hate my mother because of x y and z you know and you'll have this like really productive conversation around a really difficult um, uh, situation because the MDMA has forced empathy. It's forced the things you have to feel empathy in that situation. And that is what is so magical about MDMA. And then at the end of it, you know, you come down and actually the, the, the down of MDMA, I mean, some people have no, no hangover, but a lot of people feel really shitty after um, an MDMA trip. And you sort of have to anticipate that, you know, you sort of say, I'm doing this in this one clinical space, and then I know I'm going to have a hangover, but at the end, the benefits will, will come. Um, and mm-hmm. incidentally, don't do this with SSRIs. If you're on an SSRI, it's actually very, very dangerous yeah. to do this, and we can get into the chemistry of that at some other point. But, but the SSRI is also chemically putting you in a different state, and it's opposed chemically mm-hmm. to, the, um, to the MDMA, and it can put you into this very even a potentially fatal situation. Um, that aside, um, when, when, when we're, after you've been through this experience and you had this conversation, um, you come out of it and, and you remember all the empathy. You remember the words you said, and now you've had a productive conversation. And what the psychiatrist that we were with said is that it was like watching eight or nine months of couples therapy happen over the course of a three-hour period. Yeah. I mean, the same experience, right? I I was by myself with a therapist and it was whatever, a year's worth of therapy condensed into three hours. You walk out of it and I'm a hundred percent better as a result of it. And it was, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Speaking of dragging your wife to places and doing interesting things, you brought her to Latvia and I have to give a shout out to Maris because he introduced us. Maris Zunda, amazing dude. Yeah, he's an incredible person. And you brought her to, to Riga. You went and did the Latvian Piths, I, I believe. I could be pronouncing that wrong. I, I, I believe it's pronounced Pirts. Pirts, okay. I apologize, Maris. I should know how to pronounce that a little bit better. Which I, I could be mispronouncing it. Latvian's hard, so. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's not the easiest language to, to learn. How does the the experience of the Pierce, but also just sauna in general, um, which they are different, we can go into the differences. Uh, how does that work into a wedge in that sense? So, you know, I've done a ton of ice water stuff, right? Over, mm-hmm. You know, that this is you know I, the first book, What Doesn't Kill Us, was all about ice yep. and ice and breathing protocols, and 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 so 
what I wanted to do in this book is find all of the other sensations out there, at least find, I mean, I can't find them all, but I can put a roadmap through some of the highlights of other sensations Mm -hmm. that you can work with. And I knew I really wanted to do um, uh, heat because obviously all throughout, all through the circumpolar regions of of, uh, the world, uh, every indigenous group has some version of the sauna, yeah. right? You know, the, the Finns do, the Russians do, the Latvians do. Um, in North America, we have all the sweat lodges that are here. And, and every one of those groups has found that these are very, very useful um, things to do. And it's not just about heating yourself up. It's something about the community that, that, is, that um, gets created around these. Now, mm-hmm. I initially wanted to do a Lakota sweat lodge. Uh, one of the problems with that is when I started reaching out to many, many different tribes, not just Lakota, but also Ojibwe and the other, other um, tribes that have these traditions, um, basically everyone said, yeah, we don't want you culturally appropriating our work, which uh, <laughs> given the um, torturous history between uh, you know, guys who look like me and Native Americans, you know, I, I get it. I, I, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I was a little bummed out, but I, I, I definitely got it. And I... Um, but as I was doing this research, actually, Mars reached out to me. He's like, Scott, I want you to come to my biohacking conference in Latvia. And, uh, and as payment, I'm going to put you in a five-hour sauna. And like most people would be like, that doesn't sound so cool. But for, <laughs> for me, I was like, like jackpot. This is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so Latvia, the, one of the fascinating things about Latvia is when you ask, like, basically everyone I ask, like, what's your religion? You know, um, what, what's your religion? Just about... <laughs> Everyone I asked said they were pagan. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm a pagan. And like, no one says that in the States. No, no, the word pagan doesn't come up very often, right? (laughs) I mean, it comes up in like, yeah. And so this is like, and Latvians like spend time foraging mushrooms in the forest. And like, they have a really amazing culture um and it's it's very you know it, it, it's sort of related to like what you think the druids would be in um the united kingdom and mm-hmm. it's a very like earth feeling mm-hmm. and and the Peerts is is a very very old tradition they have which is um their you know it's their version of the finnish sauna sauna is a finnish word um sauna they could say yeah and and they have basically two shamans um, with my wife and I, and we get there and we don't know any, what to expect. We know five hour sauna and that's all we know. And we get there. And the first thing these, these, um, they call them Pirtniks or Pirtniks. No, I'm going to f- mess that up, but Pirtniks. Um, it's okay. And, I already screwed up. the name, so. <laughs> And they, um, you know, they meet you and they're wearing these like green felt hats. Mm-hmm. Right. And the first thing they do before you even get in the sauna, and the sauna is like running in the other room, right? And there's, there's a two-room place. And it's like this really upscale spa. Like, you know, it, compared to like, you know, that Japanese tradition where they take like pottery and they put gold in the, in the fractured pottery to make it look really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like that. Like, it's really high-end luxury <laughs> space. Nice. But with these druids running it. And... And uh, the first thing they do is they say, okay, we want you to first have a tea ceremony with us. And we, we sit down and we, we drink this weird teas, like teas made out of the lo- stuff in the local environment, like mm-hmm. wormwood. And, and they give us bread made out of like pine needles and, 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 and honey that's infused with like local flowers. And all of it tastes like weird and familiar at the same time. It's just like a weird meal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we have this weird meal and then we, we, 
uh, my wife and I, and actually Morris is with us at the very beginning of this, and he leaves shortly after. Um, we all stand in a circle. And they say, the Pyrtonics say, close your eyes. And we close our eyes. And then they start dancing around us like wood elves. Like it's super weird. Like they have like rain sticks and like chimes and like a cacophony of like weird sounds. Like they're shaking branches and it sounds like it's raining. One of them like plays like fur elise on like one of those music boxes. Like it's this super weird cacophony. We're just sitting there and they say, they close your eyes and just pay attention to the music. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking this is super weird and like flighty and odd right mm-hmm. um and, and they dance around us for like five minutes uh like like you know keebler elves <laughs> and 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 uh, as i'm paying attention to the oddity of this uh what i didn't notice is when we open our eyes um uh i didn't notice that one of them would open the door to the sauna in the other room which is probably running at like 250 degrees because they had it running really fast I didn't notice that the room that we were in was ridiculously hot when yeah. it comes out. I, I had just been sitting there paying attention to the, that, those weird sounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then when I opened my eyes, I felt totally normal. And then I realized I was hot and I started sweating. Uh, and, and so they sort of like confused my sensations with the, the, their weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, Maris goes to leave. Uh, and, and they say, okay, take off your own, your clothes. And, and I'm an American and like, we're all totally weird about nudity, but yeah. we do that. <laughs> and we get, we, we get naked in front of these two people we've never met and they don't even speak English. Like they, they know like eight words of English as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And these wood elves and usher us, uh, these, us, my wife and I nude into their sauna and we lie down and then they start like the, the, the next part of the ritual, which is where they, you know, you, you lie down and they're shaking like branches over the you. trees in the branches right and they, totally yeah. yeah it's like it's like birch leaves and they start hitting uh-huh. you in pine needles and and all of a sudden they're like hitting us and rubbing honeys on us and stuff like that and it's the same stuff that we ate before but in a new form so it's mm-hmm. not like the bread they're using but they're using stuff made out of the same ingredients that we had just eaten and that they're putting it on us as we are heating up the sauna is probably um, at least 180 degrees, probably up to like the 220s, so somewhere in that range. So pretty mm-hmm. hot. And as we heat up, um, they're doing that same sort of distraction thing on us that they just did with their dance by hitting us. And, and yeah. as we approach our red lines, um, that moment where you're like, I'm just too hot. And, and usually the sensations that go with this are claustrophobia you've, and, and you actually see red and it, it gets dark around and you and you want to like run out of the sauna. That's the sensations with overheating. Mm-hmm. As we get to that point, <clears throat> the shamans seem to know that we're getting there. And then they sprinkle cold water on our forehead. And we, they bring us just below that point. And, and they do this. There's a very mechanical way you can do this. Yeah. Um, is, is If they're standing there and they put their hand on you and you feel hot to them, they know that you are hot. You're feeling hotter than they are. Mm-hmm. So they can use these proxies as ways to understand how you're feeling. And, and then, then, and then after this, then the weird shit happens. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't weird enough. Then the weird things really happen is that as they start like um, rubbing honey on my chest and hitting me with, with branches, I start to experience synesthesia, which is the mixing of, of um, your sensory system. So as they hit me with a branch, I smell the branch hitting me. Mm-hmm. I hear the smell uh, of, of and, and, and I, I and like 
all of these signals, like I, I see the sound as it, as it hits me. And it's, it, it's, it's like, even with language, I'm like struggling how to explain it. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, even my brain doesn't want to make the sentences. Like, how can you see a sound? Yeah. <laughs> um, but at this point, I am. And, and it's all blending because they're using the same environmental objects that they had before, which we experienced by eating them. And now we're experiencing that, that we ate the pine needle. Now the pine needle is smacking me and I'm tasting it because it's in me and it's coming up through my esophagus. And somehow the magic of this, while under heat stress, blends. Mm-hmm. And, 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 uh, and, and then they do things like you, after you're in there for like an hour, then you go out into the a, a, a cold pond and they dunk you underwater for a second. And then they put you in the, in the back in the sauna. And then there's like just a bunch of the, stuff they do but it's always confusing your senses mm-hmm. and at the end of all of this you're like well why would you do this well everything feels really new it feels like all of your sensory system is like cleaned out mm-hmm. when you get out of this situation you feel um uh like refreshed in a way that is that you can't it, 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 it's so even hard to explain what is being refreshed because it's like your sensory systems are being refreshed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the other thing that, that heat stress has been shown to be extremely good at is uh, depression. So people who are naturally depressed, um, heat stress is one of the, is a way to just um, make you happier. Uh, and, uh, and there's a, a guy named Charles Raison at University of Wisconsin-Madison um, who, who, who's shown that people who are depressed have actually a higher body temperature than people who are not depressed. Like they're, naturally their body runs like a degree or so higher than people who are not, um, not depressed. And, 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 and if you actually are able to lower their body temperature to a normal range, their depression alleviates. This is crazy. And, mm-hmm. and you, should, you should Google Charles Raison, R-A-I-S-O-N, um, to sort of look into this. But I also talk about it in The Wedge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the reason why saunas are so great is because you artificially raise the roof, the, the, the temperature, and then you get used to this new temperature. And then you reset back down to a normal temperature baseline. Yeah. That's why saunas are so amazing. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic. For somebody who has a very limited amount of time, let's say to pursue a wedge, is there any path that you recommend them going down in terms of, of all of these experiences that, that you had, whether it be cold or hot or psychedelics, which may take a little bit right. longer. Uh, what do you, what do you recommend? So I, when I wrote the wedge, I wrote this as this is my journey. These are the things that that spoke to me because of the place I was in my life at the time I was writing this, the times I wanted to do this. And I think that everyone needs to find their own journey. Mm-hmm. And I think this is very, very important. Is that the wedge is the book is not the ten techniques to make you awesome and fit in every single way and to be a perfect human. That is not the goal of this. The goal of this is to show you ways that I'm interacting with the environment, the ways I've used these things and the way that you can take those underlying concepts and apply them to just about any practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, what you need to do is find something that doesn't have a very loud neural symbol that, that you already have wired in. Like if you're like a, a, a arachnophobe, don't go start handling spiders to become like a spider master like that. That's, that's going to be uh, hard and maybe not super beneficial, but what you are trying to find are new frontiers that you can approach um, in a safe manner. And that's super important. Like, you know, I do things that look a little dangerous, but I always do them in the sort of a managed and controlled setting as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and you want to you find those borders to push. Now, I have 10 things that worked awesome for me and, and 10 like experiments that, you know, like one thing that's like a potato fast where I eat nothing but potatoes for a week because it was boring, right? Because I wanted to have a really boring palate and see how that changed um, the way I experienced flavor. And it did. It was really interesting. You can try that. Um, I think kettlebell passing, kettlebell partner passing is a very low barred entry. And I think that it's something that um, you can get a very visceral and immediate effect right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think breathing practices, um, you know, Wim Hof has this great program. I really love the Wim Hof breathing method. I also think um, the opposite breathing method, sort of the Buteyko method uh, is also great. Mm -hmm. Um, Pranayama, like, yoga, do hot yoga. I mean, but, but when you do these practices, be mindful of the sensations. That's really the most important thing. Be mindful of how these sensations and emotions get bonded. And that adds and deepens your practices. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, The last book was very much an investigation into or a discussion around the Wim Hof method. And I remember listening to you with Ben and you had a ritual around the Wim Hof method at that time. Has your ritual changed? And if so, how in terms of breathing practices? I do. I've done the same basic breathing protocol for about 10 years. Wow. Um, And I I think the Wim Hof, uh, I don't go, usually I don't go super intense. I I do three rounds of Wim Hof breathing. And then I do one additional round. I do the push-ups. Like it's the basic Wim protocol. And I usually take a cold, uh, sorry, a hot shower. Then I turn it cold for like a minute or two at the end. That is my most basic daily practice. And I, it really works for me. Like I, I'll find that if I am, um, you know, the other day, you know, COVID we're, we're in the era of COVID, right. And mm-hmm. like, uh, like a week ago, I was like re just pressing the refresh button on my internet and getting fights, getting in fights with people on Facebook mm-hmm. for no fucking good reason. Like for, because we were all basically not fighting each other. We're trying to be like, make the world controlled. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right, we're, we're we're trying to be like the president has the wrong idea, or this, the <laughs> senator has the wrong idea. And if I just told you how wrong it was, I'm going to change. And, and like, this is a very human thing mm-hmm. um, to do, and it's totally unproductive because we don't have control over the world. Like like you know, we don't have control over whether or not this disease spreads around the planet, or whether or not the public health response is rational or not. Like we, that is not something we can do. What we can do is affect how um, that anxiety uh, feels us. And, and, and literally what I was doing on Facebook was trying to use that as a practice to control my anxiety because I figured out I could change the world. You know, and some lower lizard brains part of myself wanted to do that. And, and what was so, and I, I thought about it all night, and I'm like rolling all night in the morning, still was thinking about it. And then I did my, my normal Wim Hof practice and it interrupted that. that That's awesome. That, because when you're doing the breathing, if you're not focusing on the breathing, you're not, I mean, it's hard not to focus on breathing. It is. It's a very difficult practice. And so that interrupted it. And then, you know, my anxiety was then suddenly like gone. I was like, oh, look, I, you know, I just sort of let go of, of all of that, that stuff because there's nothing I can do about the world. There's nothing you can do about the world. We have certain actions we can take. Um, if we concentrate and we do the, our best efforts, we can have a certain effect in the world. And maybe some people can have bigger effects. I mean, obviously, a president can have a bigger effect on the public health policy than Scott Carney can. Um, uh, but nonetheless, for the vast majority of us, it, it's this experience of saying, look, the outside world, I can't change the stress. 
but I can change. I can put a wedge between how that stress affects me and, and then how I respond. And then when you do that, then you can actually be more effective in what you're, you can actually sort of think of a constructive response or you can let go and say, I just have to let the, the tides of this, of, of whatever the consequences of that stress sort of roll over me because you know, simply refreshing your browser is, is honestly not going to do a thing. <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. Scott, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And I just want to close out with just final three rapid fire questions. Sure. What book has most significantly impacted how you show up to life? How I show up to life. Um, there are so many. <laughs> there, I mean, um, I, the story of the human body is coming into my mind right now, which is, talks about this idea of evolutionary mismatches mm-hmm. and how like sort of archaic bodies are responding to modern stresses in weird ways. That, that just came into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read a lot of like science fiction. I, I, read, I uh, read a lot of philosophy. I, I, I sort of like dabble in lots of things. My favorite book is Old Man and the Sea mm-hmm. um, by Hemingway mm-hmm. about a about a man and a fish, a bit simple story about a man and a fish and love and loss. And, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I say read widely and, 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 uh, and uh, yeah, there's not just one book. It's like a, it's like a sea of books. What, uh, what is your top trick for enhancing focus? I mean, I was thinking about this really recently uh, the times when I am most focused, right? Cause I have a, a, a life where um, I have a lot of free time, right? I can structure my time and I can like daze about and not focus on anything because there's no stress pushing me to focus. And I found that if you actually create um, an artificial stress for yourself, um, you know, like, like a, like a, something like a deadline, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, how often did co- in college did you pull an all-nighter before a paper or an exam um, because you knew that exam was coming, so you had to go do that? Uh, I think there's something about that, that the realization of consequences, which put you in that state where you could do that, because you could have done that all-nighter four weeks before that because you knew that test was coming. So I, I think that something, you know, have you heard of the Pomodoro method? I love like, it. Creating a, uh, I use something called self-control, and I love that name um, on my computer, where it stops all the browsers, the internet coming into your mind. It's like sort of like puts a block on all that stuff. And there's a timer countdown, and you can create this artificial timer. Like, like I can daze and just think about all of my the weird shit that I usually think about. But when I have this timer on, I am going to focus, and it's it's sort of it's a weird. Uh, it's a weird hack that it works, but it does work. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, now I, I have a deadline. Uh, and, and especially giving it sort of limited ones is smart, like 15, 20 minutes. Like I feel like a good day of writing, I get like a thousand words written. And honestly, I can do that in 15 minutes, but I can all spend the full day trying to find that 15 minutes. Yeah. What excites you most about the health world right now? I really am in, enjoying the fact that there are a lot of medical practitioners that are more open to thinking outside the box now than probably any time in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's, there's a real opportunity right now to, to take the benefits of Western medicine and then bond those with these, these other ideas of uh, out of the wellness community, not the crazy ones, right? Cause 
There's crazy ideas. There, in the there certainly community. is. <laughs> um, but there's also crazy ideas in the medical community, mm-hmm. right? And, and one of the things that I find so important, and I have a whole chapter on this in The Wedge, is about the placebo effect. This idea, it's, a, it's like a dirty word in, in Western medicine. Oh, his recovery just had to do with the placebo effect. It must have not been real, which is like bizarre to me because if you got better, it doesn't matter if it was something called the placebo effect or not. Mm-hmm. And if you look at like randomized control studies that are placebo controlled, oftentimes you'll have a drug that is like 30% effective, which is considered generally pretty good for a drug or mm-hmm. for a chronic condition. Um, and they'll say, look, this was 30% effective at re- removing symptoms of whatever it is they're studying. Um, I like using Rogaine, which is the hair hair club for men and hair regrower. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something like 27, 28% effective in, in most men who try to regrow hair. Uh, and the placebo is like 20% effective. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like, well, the hair growing potential of, of, of Rogaine is, is like, what's the power of the mind? What's going on yeah. in the mind to get me to 20% even if that 8% is pretty cool on Western medicine, let me focus on that 20 and find other ways to accentuate these things. And I think that's really important. It's just also important to modulate that by the understandings that um, not just any fucking balls crazy idea you have is actually going to make you better. So there has to be sort of this like balance between the two. But I'm finding a lot of doctors, really, really good, smart people with real amazing credentials, um, uh, being willing to sort of engage with that gap mm-hmm. uh, and, and lend credence to it. I mean, obviously there's studies on Wim Hof method, which are really, really promising and amazing. And, uh, and I think that as long as we do it cautiously, um, we could end up in a really interesting paradigm where, where you, we can accentuate the healing powers of the body. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Scott, where can people find out more about you, this book and, you know, where can they, where can they get it? So I would love you to come to my website, which is scottcarney.com, S-C-O-T-T-C-A-R-N-E-Y.com, um, and uh, subscribe to my mailing list, mm-hmm. where I occasionally, uh, and not really as frequently as I should, but occasionally write cool things. But you can get a sample chapter of The Wedge there and read it, and then I can um, hopefully occasionally write some smart-ish emails out into the world. Um, that would be the, the most amazing thing for me. But also there's Instagram and Twitter. You just Google can pick all that stuff up. Um, you can get my book on my website, scottcarney.com, and also all of the other places people get books. If you really like my voice, my exceptional voice, um, I will, I, you can read, I, I will read to you my audiobooks of The Wedge or um, What Doesn't Kill Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the most important thing at the end of the day, the reason I do this is I want people to, to get in touch with their bodies, to find out that there is some element of control uh, and that, that our senses uh, are telling us things that are, that, uh, that, that's real and useful information and that we can use those as guides. And, and I think that even if they just listen to this podcast and they, they try something uh, internal, uh, I think that, uh, that I've done a great job. Scott, this is amazing. The book is incredible. Uh, I can't wait for everybody to hear this and go out and get it because it's, it's an awesome book. And I love that you're dedicated to the experimentation. That's for sure. But thank you again for taking the time, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Boomer. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. And I hope you enjoy lockdown as much as I am. <laughs>
<laughs> to all the superhumans listening out there, have a safe lockdown and have an epic day. Wow, there are so many gems in this episode. I had a lot of fun speaking with Scott, and I think I'm going to go and, well, try to throw kettlebells in the backyard. We'll see what that's like in this whole shelter-in-place environment that we're all in these days. But I enjoyed that conversation, and I'm hoping you did too. If you got anything out of it, share it on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you are, and just tag Decoding Superhuman, because I'd love to hear from you. And if it inclines or speaks to you, really, head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. All of those really, really help. The show notes for this one, which you're going to want to check out if you want to get Scott's book, The Wedge, which I encourage everybody to read, are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash The Wedge. Thank you so much, superhumans, and have an epic day.